I think it's important to know that we are here and accepting that it is okay to share our stories. It was just a really helpful thing for me early on. It made me feel like my voice mattered and that I could change the world. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as Spanish with Ronaldo Gilzambrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relief printmaking, their Woodzilla presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them accessible, whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist, while still guaranteeing that perfectly printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printing Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. The small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak's two favorite tools are his Fatatsubari Sankakuto 3mm V-gouge and his Josuai Maruto 1mm U-gouge, both from McLean's. But you don't have to take our word for it, because these tools speak for themselves. So head on over to McLean's at imcleans.com to find your new favorite tool and keep on carving. My guest this week is Juana Estrada Hernandez. She joined me with her partner Chantel in my little house here in Santa Fe in the middle of a monsoon. In our conversation, we talk about her practice exploring the immigrant experience and border politics, her newly minted MFA, and her experience as a DACA recipient. In this episode, we get into the importance of voting and the ways in which those who can vote have the responsibility to do so. Please enjoy this episode, and do not forget that November 8th is Election Day. If you're not sure how to register, or if you're registered, or if you can vote early where you are, I recommend going to just vote.org. It's an easy, one-stop shop for all of this. So, without further ado, here's Juana Estrada Hernandez. Hi, Juana. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. <laughs> Welcome to my home. <laughs> yes, thank you for hosting me in your beautiful uh, Santa Fe Casita. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is a, a Hello Print Friend first. You are, I think, the first artist I've recorded in my house. Like, I've definitely done in-person recordings, but they've always been out in the field at Print Austin or something like that. And so this is really fun. It's like getting to have a talk while we get to watch... My dog's walking around the house. Hopefully they'll be good. <laughs> yes, no, they're lovely. They're lovely little dogs. But yeah, thank you for opening the doors to your home. And yeah, it's just exciting to be back in Albuquerque. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. As we'll get into, you have 
some roots in educational history in this part of the world, so I'm sure we'll get into that in your story. But before we do, can you just introduce yourself and let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Yeah, so my name is Juana Estrada Hernandez, and I am a printmaking artist working as, well, recently working at as an assistant professor of printmaking at Fort Hayes State University. I am originally from Luis Moya, Zacatecas, and my family and I migrated to the U.S. in the early 2000s when I was seven years old, and I was raised for most of my life in Denver, and once I started going, like jumping from high school to undergrad and grad school, I've just traveled ever since. I feel like that's dividing childhood sort of right down the middle, right? So you had first seven years in in one part of the world, and then you moved. What was that like in terms of your artistic development, having one culture, one set of inputs leading up until seven, and then probably one quite different from seven? Do you think that that affected the way you perceive art and art making? I think it changes the way that I think art has to or should function in some ways. Art has always been like a really large part of my life. I So when, when I did finally move from Mexico to the U.S., we, my family, and I'm sure a lot of people who have to migrate, there's, this, there's, there's a lot of transitions that happen with like language, assimilating to new cultures, and all that in between. But for me, art was something that I used to communicate when I didn't know how to speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though I moved to the U.S. at a very long, a very early age, and I feel like a lot of my teachers told me that I had to, it would it would have been easier to learn to speak a new language. I always had like a learning curve. It took me a little bit longer yeah. to, to do that. And so going through school in those early years, art really just, I don't know, in many ways, it, I've always drawn in school. I think mm-hmm. that's the story of a lot of artists. Like we were just spacey yeah, people. Yeah, the doodlers. Yeah. <laughs> but like for me, it was really, it was therapy in many ways, but then also it was like a really literal way of communicating with people of, mm-hmm. when, of things that I needed. I don't know. Sometimes I'd be in the classroom and I wouldn't know how to say something. So I would just doodle it and, yeah. <laughs> and say, hey, hold up my little sketch and say, this is what I need. And so using visual language to communicate when I didn't have the words has always been, I don't know, in those, in those moments, it was, it was really life-saving in many yeah. ways. But then also, as I got older, sort of like trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I felt like, I don't know, it, it, it just feels like art has always come in at different types, at different moments in my life where I needed it to communicate with people. And I think it's, it's still functioning in that same way now, oh, yeah. but at least... I guess now I've been able to learn how to speak English and like yeah. communicate orally. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think I'm just ranting now. No, but. no, no worries. That's, I think that's, that's all really good and interesting because it's, it sounds like art had this place in your life, as you said, with a lot of artists where it's something that you do in school, but also had a real functionality for you early on. I think in a way that for me, people who didn't have that experience, they wouldn't have had that direct connection between art and communication because I think a lot of times when kids are just kids it's like oh here's a here's a bunny here's a rainbow and it doesn't have that direct communication and that that real purpose within a young artist's life yeah for sure what's your earliest memory of art and knowing that this is a thing that someone can do with their life to be honest I I wasn't really sure if 
being an artist was going to be something that I was going to be able to do because I think that as being a migrant, I don't think that's something that you always have a choice for. It's, it's really going through school. I really thought I had to be a doctor or a lawyer Mm. or just something that for sure there was like a guaranteed uh, possible job after school. Yeah. And do you you think that was something that you, you got from your folks or just the people around you? Like, where'd that come from? I think it was like a self, Mm. self placed pressure. Yeah. Growing up, my parents, we moved to this country to have the freedom to have the life that we want. And yet at the same time, it's okay. Well, to prosper in the U.S. or to get out of poverty, maybe being an artist isn't like the direct choice. <laughs> it's not the it's not the stereotypical one, that's for sure. Yes, but also I didn't really have models in my family to like to have that to like feel like I had that choice mm. until when I got to school. They're like, "Oh, hey, it looks like you really like doing this. Have you thought about being an artist?" And in high school, there was we had this program where it was a science ready program so that if you wanted to go into the medical field you could take classes that could prepare you for that and so for a long time I was like oh yeah I'm gonna be a doctor and I really enjoyed the science but then I started taking those classes and I was like oh no I don't want to do this (laughs) and uh, they had assignments to do medical illustrations of the things that we were learning and so then I for a while I was like oh yeah like I can do medical illustration but then when it came time to figure out how to go to school for that I was like oh yeah I can't afford to I can't afford to do that yeah so that didn't happen yeah I I don't think I realized that medical illustration was still a thing it seems like you would think that it'd be the kind of almost old-fashioned but of course now that I'm thinking about it, it would have to be that didactic drawing is something you can't really take a photo of because you have to I guess and thinking about it in terms of the human body, but you know, pull out a tendon that's sticking straight up to sh- point to it or something that you just couldn't actually happen in photographs. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. And so you realize that medical illustration wasn't going to work. Right. And so at that point, were you thinking about the fine arts? No, not yet. I So that was towards the end of high school. And uh, during that time, well, not only did I realize that it was too expensive for me to go to college for medical illustration but a lot of people during that time I I also was like going through this experience where I've no always known that I've always been undocumented Mm -hmm. there's these social understandings that happen with navigating the world Mm -hmm. with this with this status but I, I guess I didn't really truly understand what that really meant the implications of pursuing higher education yeah and so that was like early like 2011. And so it was, it was a really distressful time, to be honest, yeah, uh, I, trying to figure out. I had the grades. I, ha- I, th- I thought I had the work ethic. I had the drive mm-hmm. to go and pursue college. But I guess I just didn't really understand that. Like, oh, yeah, like being being with this undocumented status, you can't you can't qualify for FAFSA, yep. get a driver's license, do the do these rite of passage things that happen in high school. And then a year later, when Barack Obama passed mm-hmm. a deferred action, for childhood rivals in 2012 it was like a saving grace yeah and also that's short for daca and so during that during that year i had other andaku andaku friends who ended up finding a university called fort hayes state university in hayes kansas and i was like hey you're also well not now you're daca like 
how did that happen mm. since we can't apply for FAFSA? And so he said this university had a lot of a lot of scholarships that they didn't care about your undocumented status. Oh, that's crazy. And so when I finally got out to Fort Hayes to the and I want hopefully Hector Villanueva will hear this, but Hector Villanueva was the academic recruitment advisor for the access opportunity grant at that university. And he went out of his way that mm-hmm. to come to Denver. So uh, long story short, I got all the uh, all the scholarships that I needed to attend this college. It was almost like a full ride. Oh, um, wonderful. But my parents, this was the first time that I was like I'm also the first person in my family to mm-hmm. to go to college and uh, they were not going to let me go oh. because it was out of state. And it was too far. It was too far. Oh. And and I think they were just scared. Yeah. I was the first person that was going to go to college. They didn't know how to navigate that. Both my par- both my parents didn't. They only got as far as like fifth and sixth grade. And so navigating academia, academia was something that they've never experienced. Mm-hmm. And so Hector, he was the person who was helping me to apply for all these scholarships. And I basically said, SOS, hey, <laughs> Hector, can you come out and speak to my parents? Because they are unsure of allowing me to go. And so Hector drove his little car from Hayes, Kansas, all the way to Aurora, Colorado to talk to them. And uh, he made it happen. Oh, my God. And uh, there's a lot of people that I thank for my success. But I think that he really saved my life. <laughs> that's, a, that's an amazing story. And I, I think we'll, we will definitely send this to Hector because I think the I've had that not that experience but I've had moments in my life where it just seems like there are people who for almost no reason just decide that I'm worth something and that worth fighting for and that's the thing you can't ever pay back you can just hope to be able to do that for someone else and so it's just a beautiful story yeah yeah. What do you think it was that he said to your folks that let them know that it was going to be okay and that this was important for you to do? I think he just during that during that meeting, he just he really broke down what the college mm. life was going to be about. And he talked about the campus like culture, the classes that were going to be involved. But also he talked to them in Spanish. He yeah. was um he's also Hispanic and I think that it really helped them to see someone that looked like us yeah. and say, oh, wow, he's like in, he's in higher academia. And like, he seems to, I think it was just like a perfect scenario because I think he made them feel comfortable. He was clear, he was honest. And, and I think he just genuinely cared. And yeah. I think that's what they needed to see till this day. Hector doesn't work at that university anymore, but he still reaches out and asks how I'm doing. And he asks about my parents. And I think Hector really cared about not necessarily just raising the numbers for our institution that I currently work for now, Mm -hmm. but he genuinely cared about creating community. Yeah. 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 And and people who I think see their roles, particularly in academia, as a way to actually affect positive change are some of the most precious people because there's so much administration in academia. I feel like this just weird and soulless you know I've I've got family who are professors and it's just yeah talking to them sometimes it's oh my gosh so that's wonderful and so what was it like for you as you said being the first one in your family so you're really 
setting out in uncharted waters. I'm sure you had friends who had gone off, but in terms of your immediate family, you were the first. Was this like exciting, scary? Did you feel like you were ready? I, I felt like I've been preparing for this moment when I finally got to undergrad like all my life. Mm. This is something that our parents were like, okay, you're going to go through the motions and this is the last step for you to be whatever you want to be. So it was, it was like exciting, but it was also scary because I was like, I can't fail any classes because there's also, because again, like financially speaking, it was such a miracle that I got to that place, but I don't know. I, I just enjoyed it. And, uh, and then also too, I think that this university was small and it was intimate and I don't know, it just gave me space to just do what I had to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you arrived, did you know fine art was what you were going to do at that point? It's funny because when I got there, Hector was under the understanding that I was going to go into, I was going to be like a neurophysicist. And so I signed up for all these science classes because still I felt like, oh, you know what? I can take art classes on the side and still pursue that and, and enjoy that. And But also I need this more practical job. Mm-hmm. And then I showed up for my first classes that first week. And then I said, you know what, Hector, I can't do this. And he was like, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to get an art degree. And he's like, well, that's totally different because your grades are not reflective of like your your grades are really great. And they're really reflective yeah. for, towards that science path. And so he's like, okay, well, bring me your art. Let me, let me see your art. <laughs> and, and so I brought him like, like a few paintings that I had made in community college and drawings. And he was like, oh, wow, you're actually pretty good. Okay. Like, that's good. He's like, go for it then. And I don't think it was, I think he just wanted to make sure that I was serious and that I wasn't like, yeah, I'm not like that. I really, like, I felt like that was a real passion. And he was like, okay, cool. Like, he's like, I just thought you were like one of those people who just doodled for fun and yeah. Just thought, I don't know. I don't know what he thought, but. I mean, I, I could see it, especially if you see a young woman with a lot of talent in STEM wanting to see that be pursued. And then it's your life, your choice, but yeah, wanting to just make sure that it's okay. All right. Now, Juana can just do everything. So this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And. Oh, you see, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have some Hello Print Friend ambiance. We've got a, a monsoon coming through the the house right now. It's pick, the mic's picking up a little bit, but that's it's cozy. So, do you think that that early interest in that and astrophysicist, right? Right. Yeah, that's like I feel like that's the like the the joke thing that people make when they're thinking of something very hard to do. <laughs> you know, like it's not astrophysics, right? Do you think that early interest in science does it show up in your art at all or was that really more of a practical choice but or was it a passion that sort of finds its way back into what you make no it was I would say it was definitely a practical choice I mean I've always liked learning how things are made how things are taken apart and put Mm. back together and how things yeah like how things are just yeah like made and I and I felt like I don't know it, it was really interesting and it was really engaging for me but I think in some ways, like, I don't think necessarily the science shows up in the work, but I think it's printmaking is so process-based. There's a lot of, yeah. there could be a lot of chemistry involved. And so there's still, there's thing that, things that I continue to learn about print and things that are continu- continuously being discovered and pushed. And so I think like that sense of 
like excitement for science and yeah. like alchemy and things like that are still mm-hmm. in there and process and yeah, process. yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. uh, but yeah i definitely would say that the I, I i do wonder sometimes what would have happened if i pursued a path like that but i don't know i don't regret yeah. i don't regret it oh yeah so. totally totally i yeah who knows maybe you'd be out working at los alamos or something out this way <laughs> who knows and so when you first discovered printmaking, was that in your undergrad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, so when I finally did that switch from science to an art degree, the only thing that I had left, like, so based off of what was left over in the classes that were available was printmaking. Oh, and printmaking. So, <laughs> and so I was, so the night before, I'd never heard of printmaking. And I think this is pretty common for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of printmaking before. And so the night before, I'm like, well, what is printmaking? And the first things that popped up on Google were screen printing. Like, yeah. you can make shirts. And so I just remember not going very far down the Google, like in my <laughs> Google search. And so I just showed up the next day thinking, oh, cool, we're going to make t-shirts and with screen prints and make clothing and I don't know things that are more commercial and then I ended up like not learning screen printing at all in my undergrad and but after that first semester I was like oh my god this is this provides a little bit everything drawing painting working with your hands and I don't know I just never turned back after that it was such a really exciting class and yeah it was just like a love at first sight I think I got halfway through that first semester and I just said I'm gonna be a print major and that was it yeah yeah. And so what was your early work like? It was, it was still very like figurative, like representational. It was like, I think a lot of it, like in terms of the theme, there's, there's a lot of overlap, but a lot of that early work was just still figuring out my place in the world, like mm. trying to figure out what it meant to be like a DACA person, giving myself time and space to figure out what, what it meant for me what it meant for others who were in this place and uh, but then also there was just a lot of bad prints <laughs> with trying to figure out process yeah and understanding how things worked and but visually speaking there was there there were like very dark because I think that even though starting college it should be like in a very exciting time which it was there was still like a lot of tension because mm. a year before I wasn't really sure what my life would have been and then DACA just showed up and I was like oh awesome now I can take a step forward not five steps back from talking to other people what I understand is that the only choice would be to return to whatever country someone's from and then wait and try and come as like an international student which would then be this whole nother long process and of course as you said there's no financial aid for international students and all of it so yeah I see I see what you're saying about the stepping forward versus stepping back was there any sense of being able to process that what you'd been through in that early work, as you said, the uncertainty and then the certainty and then the uncertainty again, that's some big dramatic experiences to be having as a young person that a lot of people who are going to college don't have to experience that. It's just, I just want to get into at least my safety school, right? Was it, did that come out at all in your early making? Yeah, definitely. It still hasn't gone away because even though that guy did start in 2012, it's, I mean, it's still... Actually, as of last week, it just got sent back to court and they're deciding whether to take it or leave it. And so this level of uncertainty, I don't think has ever left since the program started. But in some ways, like I'm still living 
in survival mode. And I'm not really sure, even if if ever, if DACA were to be, I don't know, um, like if there was like a different pathway for me and the other 600,000 600, people, I think that a lot of us have been living this way for so long that I don't, I'm not really sure like what it's like not to live that way. Yeah. A lot of people say, I was like, oh, that's really sad. But at the end of it, it's like, it is, it, it just is as of right now. Yeah. But as far as like the early work, I really tried to, there was like one thing that my undergrad mentor said to me very early on. His name is Gordon Sherman, who recently passed away. He, he basically was like, well, you're making like the very early stuff. First year I was making like images of like skulls and like animals and things like that. And he, I remember him saying, well, this is great and all, but I think that based off of the things that I've learned from you and all the stories that you shared with me, it seems like you need to, if you're ready, allow space for that. And he kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't say he gave me permission, but he's like, you, it, like it's okay to do this with your work. And maybe this is what you need to do. And I was like, okay, you know, I was really young. I was like, okay, I, whatever. But once I started making prints about my family's migraine experience, it just started to drive my work in, in ways that I couldn't have foreseen maybe like before then. But yeah, it gave me almost this, this drive to really, there's this, there is a power in making political artwork and mm -hmm. that there is power of sharing stories of the things that people are have experienced in the past, present, and will maybe in the future. And uh, and I think that for me, because I was a, the, a part of the new DACA wave, I felt like at that moment, it's if miraculously, I got to got to go to school for art, where, in, again, like I, I wasn't sure if I was ever going to be able to, then I'm going to use my art to make a difference mm. and to basically use my work to create a platform for people who, for others. There's a lot of people in my community who are afraid to say, to expose themselves and their statuses and things like that. But I think that there's also a lot of power in that mm -hmm. it doesn't, I think it's important to know that we are here and accepting that it is okay to share our stories. It was just a really helpful thing for me early on. It made me feel like my voice mattered and that I could change the world. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And everything you said makes a lot of sense and particularly in regard to the power of storytelling and I would imagine telling your own story from your own perspective mm -hmm. uh, because as you say there are a lot of trepidation about people coming forward with their documented status like for good reason because there can be consequences but it's without the voice of undocumented people in the world then there's no narrative that comes from them and it's only things get being projected onto people who are undocumented so being able to be a voice that's actually creating a narrative from the lived perspective of a human who's gone through this. It's incredible work. It has to happen that way. And a lot of my recent artwork that I made in grad school, I, I was going through grad school during the Trump administration. Yeah. And we can talk a lot about the things that we disagree and as far as like everything that they did and changed. But Their administration, I think, was the most vocal about their distaste for yeah. migrant communities and their continuing of changing policies to attack migrants. Yes, like for me, they, they went after DACA and they failed, which hooray for me yeah. and hooray for the rest of the folks who have this status. But then they also went 
after people who were fleeing violence in lots of places in Latin America with the zero tolerance policy that was separating families in the U.S. southern border. So during going, so during that time in grad school, I think it like really propelled that, like it really, I suppose it really pushed me to keep talking about my stories because it's, there was a lot of, there was a lot of misrepresentation in the media. And so I was like, wait a minute, that's not accurate. And my nieces, I have a, I have now have a nephew, but around 2018, 2019, I had, uh, my family came up from Denver to visit me in Albuquerque and it was my first, it was their first time driving up and they brought my oldest niece. And at the time was eight years old. And when they finally got to Albuquerque, they, my niece was like, she just got out of the car and I was asking me a lot of questions. And a lot of them were like, Hey, like, where do we come from? Like, where is Trump's wall? My grandma and my grandpa were saying that like, we can't go anywhere near the border, like, Mm. or we can't go to Mexico because we can't come back. And so for her, she was like, what? She had a lot of questions. And she was like, yeah, because on the news, I saw that they were saying that we are bad people and Mm. that we are doing A, B, C, and D. And so she was experiencing this like really skewed negative perspective of her own family yeah her people in our community and so she was like well what's going on because that's not true because I'm being raised by all of you guys and we're not bad people Mm -hmm. and so I was like I had the privilege of I guess in some ways knowing more of where I come from like she's now second generation right and so she had a lot of questions about yeah where do we come from and why did we come here and how did we get here and what are we going to do? What were what were we doing in those first early days moving to the U.S. and things like that? And while also trying to push away that negative perspective that was being presented in the media. And so for me, I, when I had after that trip, I was like, oh, my God, like the, it is solidified the sort of responsibility that I gladly took to say, OK, like I really need to share my family's history or oral histories and traditions and just like really push that into the work while also not forgetting that when there's a lot of there is a lot of pain and trauma that happens within my family history of moving to the U.S. but then there's also a lot of beautiful things that have happened as well Mm. my niece like she was she just happened because of that but so yeah like I think it is important to have people be able to like voice their stories and not allow yeah because once other people from that are not from your culture or your community like start sharing your stories it's I don't know you yeah I don't know it's not it, it just doesn't make sense to me yeah yeah well it's, it's it's just not their experience exactly yeah yeah and it's 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 going to be altered in some way there's just there's no even even people with good intentions, if just passing through another human experience, something will change coming right. out the other side. Right. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of how these narratives, as you said, both sort of like the beautiful and the traumatic and probably everything in between, how do they show up in your work? Yeah. So a lot of my work focuses on, I would say, nonlinear intergenerational stories mm-hmm. uh, that are done in collaboration with my mom and dad, my nieces and nephews, sometimes my aunts and uncles, my siblings, and 
as of recently, I've been making just like a lot of, I genuinely like all the processes in print, but I've been doing a lot more just like lithographs as of late. And I think it just, because it just reminds me of that. It's like a very direct process, but I've always loved to draw. And so mm-hmm. it just feels like one of those like natural choices, but I have prints that show like my family celebrating like a party, like with a piñata. So it's like, thinking about like the traditions that come that we brought to the US there's a lot of prints that have like food in it and so really just like uplifting those traditional foods that we brought with us there's prints that that show there's like a, there's one print like with like a little boy in the slingshot that i presented in SGCI this past conference yeah like a little slingshot with a nopal trying to shoot ice so still talking about like the ways that ice still affects our immigrant communities and yeah, they're just kind of they're just kind of like all over all over the map as far as stories, but yeah. So it's just like a lot about just showing my family members within them, showing like different aspects of like my cultures so or like food. And not literally and not only just like drawing food, but also like the colors. Like I've been using mm-hmm. more colorful I've been making more colorful prints just of like the reflective of like my home. And then there's this, and then sometimes too, like there's like writing that shows up in the prints as well. Yeah. And when I do write on the prints, sometimes it's like forms of questions or, and they're always in Spanish, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I think that I feel like there's always the question of like, who, who is your audience in, in uh-huh. going through art school or like, yeah, like who, who did you make this for? Who, who is this intended for? But I think some, once you put the work out there, you never know who's going to see the work. Sure, it can be, you can be very particular as far as where the work is going to be exhibited. But at the end of the day, it's open to the public. And for me, I still wanted to have, as far as like my choice of using Spanish, for one, it makes me feel connected to my family, to my culture. But also, I think that it's important that if this work is about, it's like, it's about my family, it's for my community, it's mm-hmm. for my family then there has to be some sort of connection there. And for me, I've, I choose Spanish to do yeah. that with. When I presented my MFA thesis show last December, I specifically picked a place in Albuquerque in the Borrelas neighborhood because I didn't, I, well, I didn't necessarily like the spaces that were available on campus, but I felt like it was really important to get my work out into the community. When I presented it, I drew directly on the wall mm-hmm. and on the wall, there was a lot of questions to guide this story that I presented. But when the public started to come in to the show, there was a lot of, there was actually a lot of like little families, Hispanic families. And of course my mentors came in, my grad cohort and friends came in. But, but I, when I saw these families come in and see the work, I really saw them engage with the work in a way that I've never seen before. And what I mean by that is that they really sat with the work and read the questions and like they started to talk about their own stories in the space, which is something that I never could have anticipated. And for me, that was that was really humbling and exciting because here I am presenting this body of work that shares my family's migration stories and their triumphs and the the pain, the things that we've experienced as um, immigrants living in the U.S., and yet there was other people coming in. And of course, we are not, as a culture, we're not a monolith. Everybody has different experiences, but these people 
were coming in and they were talking about their own yeah. experiences. And I went over to some women and I said, and I just talked to them in Spanish. I was like, hey, like, what do you think about the work? And they're like, are you the artist? And I was like, yeah. And then they were like, this is not how you say that. And I was like, what do you mean? And then she's like, it's actually, I don't, I can't remember what it was, but she was like, this is not how you write this. And I was like, well, where are you from? And she was like, well, I'm from Chihuahua. And I was like, well, I'm from Zacatecas. Like we say things differently. And um, yeah, she was a very sassy <laughs> person. But yeah, it, it almost created like a pod or like a safe space to share stories. Yeah. But then also too, there's a lot of people who feel surprised that anybody would would take the time to depict them and their stories. Mm. And my mom and dad have always said, well, why us? Why does anybody want to see us in the gallery or in the museum? Like they don't feel, they're like, why don't, I don't know. They're very confused about that. And so for me, I'm like, well, why? Like, I think that our stories matter. And I think that your, you matter. I want to see people that look like me in institutions a gallery or a museum or a university or all these things because it does matter mm -hmm. and uh, but they're always so surprised and these these families that came in during my show they were just so surprised they're like oh wow these are our stories in, in some loose way there was a lot of intersections that they had with mine I think that's why it's important for me to keep making my work mm -hmm. because I, I want to live in a world where it's not surprising to see Brown people in a space totally. or or to have people just be surprised that they can see themselves within the white gallery walls mm -hmm. um, yeah and I think that's something that for a lot of people it's sort of in, invisible to them when your identities are the dominant narrative you don't even question it I think it really speaks to how when you only have people who are the dominant narrative creating the dominant narrative that it will never, ever, ever change. And I think just really in the last decade or so, I think you're seeing major culture producers like Disney realizing the value of having other narratives, just, just something else, you know? And and the fact that, for, I, not that I would ever think Disney is altruistic, I think it's they probably realize they could make, they could make money on it, of course. And I think starting to understand like the real emotional gravity of that for people who haven't been seeing themselves in visual culture in museums as you say in movies and so I would hope that we're kind of starting to move the needle on that a little bit in in many ways and so you would find artists like yourself working and then also in, in pop culture as well that maybe we are hopefully moving towards that as you say that time when it isn't shocking to people and maybe your niece and nephew when they have kids it'll just it, it won't be as shocking but it's important work and it's important for to be able to give people opportunities to be in the situation to be the culture creators yeah for yeah. sure mm -hmm. yeah for sure and I think as far as changing the who who is represented in different spaces I think that there's still a lot of work to do but yeah. I think that there's still definitely the wave is starting to part and they're starting to be more room but I think also we're seeing the sort of wave new printmakers new curators new gallery owners new shop owners that are all for that and I think that's what we need like people who are going to open those doors and even if there isn't people who open those doors then well hell let's make our own spaces yeah yeah uh, you know that's okay too and maybe that's even better mm -hmm. totally because yeah again as you say when your narrative passes through someone else is going to change, you know? And so if, if that gatekeeper is, 
is still someone else. It's altered. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you have a, a relatively recent MFA. Was it last year that you graduated? In 2012? Uh, Sorry, 2012. So dyslexic. 2021? Yes, December yeah. 2021. So that means that your MFA experience was probably greatly impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, it did. I was supposed to finish in spring 2021, but I decided to extend another semester. And I think you'd, a large part of that decision was just because because of the pandemic, there was a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of other folks who can connect with this, but there was just a lot of shops that were closed, like access to studios. and And I guess I just felt like, yeah, I had lost a semester to to the pandemic and I thought it would be okay to stay for another. I've been in school for so long. I was like, what's another semester? (laughs) But then also too, like, I felt like I finally hit a spot in where the, my handle on the techniques, like everything just was like, oh wow. Like I, I'm not having problems with, I don't know, a spit bite or like these nuanced processes. And, but then also too, I think I just needed more time to process the things that we had lived through with the pandemic. But then also, I think I just created a more cohesive, presentation for my for my thesis I wasn't really sure if I wanted to pressure myself to hurry up and finish because for me it was like first of all again I wasn't really sure if I was gonna go to grad school and I just felt like I had to finish it in my own terms in my own way and and if it had to be for another semester then that's okay yeah yeah I think that's really an important message for particularly young artists to hear because there is such a pressure to just constantly doing, making, producing on a deadline. And so to hear that it can be okay to just say, to do my best work, I need more time. And I feel like that's not something that artists really are taught, that that's okay. You know, there's so much pressure on producing, I think, particularly in school. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, because otherwise, I think it too, at that time, getting out of this space of being sheltered in place we had we had been staying at home for so long and also readjusting to get, like getting back into the world yeah no it was I'm glad that I stayed a little bit longer and and I think sometimes even for me it is hard to say I need more time because I, I I do I like to keep myself busy but I think at that time I was like okay I really just need more time and uh, but I'm glad that the finances worked out and I was able to do it yeah yeah. But yeah, making that choice of giving yourself more time isn't always as easy for everyone. Yeah, it's definitely, things have to line up for it to work, but definitely, yeah, do it if you can. And so what was your final thesis like? It was, honestly, it was, yeah, it was just really busy. I, I recently got hired for my first teaching position. I actually got hired the semester that I was thesising. Oh, gosh. So, like I said, I, I graduated in December 2021 but I first but I started my teaching position in August of that fall semester so it was really hectic yeah there was a lot of nights where I didn't sleep very well I don't know it was not the healthiest I would say but also I think it was like the semester where I felt like I really hit my stride with making one idea just kept informing the next and the next but then also I I don't know it was like this really interesting excitement for what I was doing where where it's not not to say that I I wasn't excited 
with the things that I was making before during grad school, but I don't know what happened. And maybe it was just like the delirium of having to (laughs) teach during the day and then work at night and then just do it all over again until it was completed. But yeah, thesis semester was a trip, but I do wonder what it would have been like if it if I hadn't had to teach. Yeah. But either way, like I think that the work that I presented was some of the most like honest work that I've ever made. Mm. And what does it mean by honest to you? Early on, I, I, I felt like I made work, like the work that I was making really was like, hey, like let me share my narrative so that I could, I can change your mind of not being anti like immigrant or like racist or discriminative towards like other people who are maybe not that don't look like you and when I mean like honest it was work that shared my stories in a way that Mm. it wasn't really there was not as much emphasis of let me change somebody else's mind it's let me just show you like or let me tell you my story and I don't care what you think because I at the end of the day I needed to do it for me I needed to do it for the other generations of my family. I needed to do it for my community and just, uh, and do it because I needed to for myself and not mm-hmm. for any other bigoted people. That's such a, an important distinction, but one that I feel like feels really reflective. I think of a lot of artists journeys into being a mature artist is that, as you said, like you're often asked to think about your audience Of course, that's part of the training that we get as artists, but that ability to find not knowing that you've got an audience out there, but making work because you need to see it in the world, not thinking so much about its reception, I feel like is like a, it's something that you can only get there by just making a lot, kind of building up that understanding of yourself and all of it, getting to the point where you can just be like, no, this needs to exist for me and for the people that I care about is, yeah, is a very cool place to be, I think. Yeah. So what are you looking forward to? What do you have on the horizon that people can keep an eye out for? I have a couple shows coming up this year, but I'm just hoping to, to be able to make new work and things like that. But I really just need a future where my future is stable. Mm-hmm. And and so I feel like that's just a very, I don't know, I don't know when that will be. But like now being like going through school and starting my first teaching job. Yes, teaching is going to keep me busy and I enjoy it. I'm going to have more shows coming up. But I, re- I just really need time to live without a unstable status. Yeah. And I want that for other people as well. And yeah, Grandpa Biden needs to hurry up and do something, <laughs> something for our communities. Yeah. But yeah, so as far as the tangible things that are coming up, I have a solo show coming up in Echamano Gallery in Santa Fe and a two-person show with Umberto Sainz at the Janet Print, or the Janet Print, no, what is it? Janet Turner Print Museum in, in Chico, Chico California. Yeah. Yep, in Chico, yeah, California. Cool. But yeah, so that's that's what's coming up and yes, but yeah, I I guess like for those who will be hopefully like hearing this podcast in the future, like I really want all of you guys to really just stay informed, of course, like about what's happening in the world and yeah, sometimes we do need to like shut off from all all the things that we don't like that are happening in in our communities and, and things like that, but 
yeah, we just have to stay informed and see what's happening mm-hmm. with other communities. And for me, I mean, yeah, like I'm very passionate about what's happening with DACA because of course I am being affected by it, but it just, it's just like one facet of a big problem that's happening, mm-hmm. that has been happening in the United States for a long time, which is that there's no real, there, there hasn't been really like any tangible solutions for providing what the government, right, has called essential workers, mm-hmm. right? Like people who work in the agricultural sector, people who work in like factories and things like that, like people who kept our nation going during one of its worst times during COVID. And, but yet like there's still no relief being provided for, for us. Mm. So as far as like what I ask for our community is just like, keep your ears open. And I don't know, you guys can just spread the word about what's happening, do it. Because I think that, I don't know, it's just like a conversation that keeps being cycled in my community and there's never a solution. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, I know, like, as you're talking, bouncing around in my head is these ideas around how, like, we're all Americans. Unless you're an indigenous person, someone not too long ago came to this country. And the culture in America is very individualistic and very, like, divisive. And, you know, like the Hatfields and the McCoys. I mean, this like, like, this is, this is mine. You can't have it. You know, this. And it's, it's led to real strife and just awful cultural climate in the states that's just getting worse and i i feel like the only the only antidote to that is moving back into the we're all americans trying to find that shared sense of what it is to live in this land and be on this soil and know that the vast majority of us are all visitors here and that we need to understand how we don't survive unless we all survive. And as you said, people who kept the country absolutely going, like kept your strawberries and your Trader Joe's in, in summer 2020, right? This, they are American because they are part of the American system. And it is a, it is a an awful hypocrisy, particularly in this country. Oh, <laughs> you need to for make sure. that distinction. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we live on stolen land. Exactly. I don't care what your what you think your history is like that's what it is and and then too also there was a lot of i don't know if a lot of people know this or not but there was a lot of people in the medical field who are also daca mm-hmm. and we're like in the front lines right of this pandemic so you're right there is a lot of hypocrisy right where i think that we like as migrants we need we we can have this hold on the American dream, but I think that within the American dream, there is a lot of hypocrisy mm-hmm. and then there is a lot of, I don't know, like, I don't, I just don't, I'm not really sure about that word anymore because of the fact that, yeah, there's like, there's still so much work to be done. And yes, I think that there's still a lot of disparities that are happening all over the world. And yes, maybe we, like the folks who are I don't know. It's interesting because there, I have family who still live in Mexico and they're like, well, like, despite the politics, like you're still in the U.S., like you still have been able to more or less live like a successful life. It was, it's been hard, but life is hard. And But it's OK. But with that conversation, I still want 
there shouldn't be a choice between i don't know i think like the understanding that i got is even if things are hard in the u.s like you're still living a better life than you would have been in any anywhere else who or where there's poverty and violence and natural disasters happening all the time and corruption and things like that but there's still a lot more that can be done for the people that live in the u.s and yeah like i I don't know it just pisses me off that they say (laughs) that we are like essential workers and we are still getting screwed at the end. Mm-hmm. We're given promises every with every democratic administration and nothing happens. And and yeah, and yeah, that's why voting is important. But I, I just feel like th- there's still a lot of people in the government that hold back. And I don't know. I totally agree. And I, I feel like you're voicing, I think, what a lot of progressive people feel, which is a, a deep frustration with the Democratic Party for not upholding the ideals that we hold. And these, you're like, yeah, let's take care of undocumented workers. Let's take care of health care. Let's give mothers paid maternity leave. All of these things that like everyone I know who identifies as a progressive person would love to see enacted. And yet, you know, it's just, it just is this impotence, it seems, on the part of the Democratic Party to actually do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's still... Also, the other side that people who can vote don't vote. Yeah. I and know. that is horrible. I can't vote. Mm-hmm. I wish I had a voice. But as far as electing whoever is going to run this, the place where I live in now. And yeah, it's like when I hear people who say things like, well, my vote doesn't really matter. I wish you could give me your vote because yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting here with my hands tied, wishing that I could just cast my ballot and I can't. And like, how am I more informed about the dates on when you have to register or where you have to go than, yeah. than the person who has the born given right to do so? Mm-hmm. It's We could definitely do a whole nother episode on that. <laughs> it was really interesting living in Australia where voting is mandatory. You actually get fined if you don't vote. Well, Juana, where can people find you and see your work and follow you and help inform themselves about what you're doing in your story? Yes, so I have uh, a Instagram account mm-hmm. called at uh, Wanna See My Prince. The possibly the best Instagram print name out there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and you should thank Chantel Bollinger for that. They're my partner, and uh, yeah, they're like, do something memorable, do something punny, and they uh, they use puns all the time. I, I like puns, but then sometimes I'm like, oh my God, it's too much. Like, hey, thank you, dad. Uh, moments. <laughs> and um, we can also thank Chantel for wrangling the doggies and yes. keeping the doggies quiet during this interview. So thank you. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so you can find me on Instagram and at Wanna See My Prince. I also have an artist website called Wanna See My Prince. And uh, yeah, you guys, as far as like where you can see my work in real life, it's just going to be. Like I said, I'm going to have some work in Santa Fe, some in Chico, some at 516 Arts, which is a contemporary museum in downtown Albuquerque, and or otherwise, you can just come and visit me in Hayes, Kansas, and see my work there. Wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for coming out to my house and having a chat. This was really a treat to get to do this in person, so thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards for you right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice 
or buy something from our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Martin Schneider, founder of the Open Press Project. We talk about his creation of the world's first widely accessible 3D printed printing press, why he gives it away for free, and his traveling exhibition of tiny prints made on this special press. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.